Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast for May 2009. My name is George Miller, and coming up later in this programme, I'll be talking to Adam Creed about his new series of detective novels and its hero, D.I. Will Wagstaff. Some British crime heroes drink log from tins and, and have takeaway food and are overweight and have barren love lives. I wanted Staff to have all those things that those people lack. I wanted him to be not quite a James Bond figure, but he's, he's very well educated. He has an interest in antiques. He likes fine wine. He drinks single blend malt whiskies. He, he has an array of girlfriends. My first guest today is Andy Beckett. Andy is a Guardian journalist whose first book for Faber looked at the hidden history of the Pinochet regime's links with Britain. His new book is called When the Lights Went Out, and it examines the history of Britain during that most maligned of decades, the 1970s. Andy set out to investigate whether that decade's unrelievedly bleak reputation is wholly justified. And for those of us who remember power cuts, strikes and escalating violence in Northern Ireland, he offers up a much more nuanced picture than the familiar clichés. Andy and I met on a day when the death was announced of the iconic trade union leader of the 70s, Jack Jones. There was a tube strike in London, and a background of worries over their weakening currency and rising unemployment. I suggested to him that contemporary politics were offering up uncomfortable parallels he could never have envisaged when he set out to write his book. When I started researching the book about five years ago, we were in the middle of the kind of Blair boom, and the 70s, although people were very interested in it, seemed quite a remote era, kind of time of sort of high inflation and crisis and fear about the economy and fear about the political future. But it kind of gradually crept up on me while I was researching and writing the book. And I found that made me think a little bit differently about the kind of tough times that politicians and union leaders and ordinary people went through in the 70s and maybe made me slightly more forgiving than I might have been at the beginning. Because you realise that crises take people by surprise and that Heath, for example, in the early 70s was commissioning all kinds of great big state schemes like an offshore airport um, in the North Sea, which I write about, the Channel Tunnel, because he thought he was going to have money. And then the oil crisis happened and he didn't have any and they had to be cancelled. And it's easy to look at Heath and say, what a fool, why didn't he see that coming? But nobody saw the banking crisis coming here or very few people did. So it's made me think more about how posterity and hindsight kind of treats politicians and has made me maybe try and angle the book away from just constant recrimination, which is the kind of traditional mode of writing about the 70s, saying why didn't they see bad things would happen? Why were they so overconfident? Why didn't they see that Britain needed to change? Because things are often not like that at the time. And I think the current crisis shows that. The, almost the entire political establishment here have been taken by surprise again. Mm. Yeah, you, you mentioned there some received ideas that you wanted to challenge, and you wanted to challenge the sort of pop culture interpretation of the 70s, which we're in danger of seeing as perhaps the only, the only one that's sort of standing the test of time. Yes, I mean, I think that the 70s is clearly a very rich period for kind of culture of all kinds, and a lot of that culture has interesting things to tell us about the 70s, but I felt that that's become almost the main way people get at the 70s. They talk about punk, they talk about TV, they talk about the films, and I felt that that had been done a tremendous amount already. There are literally two or 300 books on punk and I felt how much could I really add? I also feel that cultural evidence is quite tricky. Sometimes a film is said by critics to really tell you about a particular era, but actually the film was made two or three years before it came out. And a lot of the very bleak pop music at the end of the 70s, post-punk, was, was made at a time when actually the economy was improving. 
but the songs reflected the feelings of those musicians maybe a couple of years before. So I think the read across from culture in the 70s to the kind of politics and the economy and society has to be done with care. But I think my main motivation was I want to try and tell a new story and the culture of the 70s has an enormous literature, um, including some fantastic books, and I haven't really got that much to add. So I'm going to concentrate on politics because I feel that that's the thing that the myths are about, but which hasn't actually been dealt with straight for a long, long time. And so that was the kind of project of the book. And what expectations did you have of the politicians that you interviewed? Because they're obviously mainly very old men now, and they've all got their own grudges and scores to settle on, or perhaps rose-tinted views. So what expectations did you have of those encounters which, which run through the book? I certainly expect them, as you say, to be very old. I mean, one thing about the 70s and the way in which Britain was different then was you didn't get to run anything until you were a lot older than now. So people that ran Britain in the 70s were already in their 50s or 60s. So if they're alive still, they're in their 80s now. So I was seeing some people who were really quite old, who sometimes couldn't remember, but also some of whom were very cunning and had already had their say in their memoirs and so on, a lot of which were published in the 80s and which generally saw the 70s as a terrible period because that was the view of the 70s then. So I guess I expected I would encounter some kind of clever but quite sly people, people like Dennis Healy, who were very entertaining to interview, but were keen to place themselves at the centre of events in the 70s and also to make themselves look good in retrospect, which is what politicians do. So I wanted to see Healy, I saw Heath, I saw Jack Jones, but I was also aware that that couldn't be the whole story, that politicians are quite adept at making themselves look good in retrospect. And also that in a way, politics in the 70s is as much about ordinary people taking part in strikes, taking part in feminist activities, taking part in gay liberation, environmentalism, those new movements. And so the story couldn't be told entirely through, if you like, the members of the various cabinets. And I think sometimes historians, contemporary historians, almost collect all the cabinet ministers in a particular era in a slightly kind of macho way, like I've got more, and actually how much does that tell you? So I tried to be quite selective about who I would go and see, and also to treat, as I said, what they said with a degree of kind of scepticism. And it's also part of the project to actually go and see the sites of various key events in the 70s on the ground. Was that was that built into the, the, the plan from the start? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I wanted the book to be readable, and I wanted it to have a sort of novelistic quality in places. Um, I'm not a huge reader of traditional books about decades because I feel they often lack those qualities. So partly I thought if I went to the places, it would give the book perhaps a greater vividness. But also I think sometimes you need to go to the places to understand. I went to Saltley in Birmingham where there was a huge confrontation between the police and the miners in 1972 when the miners were on strike. And it was really like a kind of battle between the police and the miners. Not that violent, but thousands of police, thousands of miners trying to stop each other doing what they wanted. The miners wanted to shut down an old coke depot. The police didn't want them to. And you need to be on the ground to see the lie of the land, to see where the buildings were, to kind of get a sense of how that battle was actually played out. And also you need to go to see people locally, to talk to them what they, about what they remember, to see if they remember it at all, to get some sense of what's left of the 70s. And I think part of the book's project as well was to say what's left of this era. Has it disappeared or is it actually amongst us still? Are these tower blocks still there? Are the old factories still there? Are the people still there? So I constantly had that in mind. What's the relationship between the 70s and now? The ideas physically, how much of it remains? And just to kind of get a sense of place and what part it played in these events. I'm a great believer in, in journalism that I write as well that 
that often the place itself tells you a tremendous amount about the event and, and that often writers or journalists are reluctant to kind of go to the place because it seems a bit too obvious to go and do that. But often you, you suddenly see the thing afresh when you see the factory, when you see where the picket line was, where you see the oil rig in the North Sea rather than just reading about it. We mentioned at the start the parallels that could be drawn between then and now, but one way in which the 70s seems a very different place is in industrial relations, which is a story running through the whole book. Um, and you mentioned Saltley at the beginning, but right up to the winter of discontent at the end of the, the decade. And that, that's, that is something which has changed beyond recognition, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that a huge difference between the 70s and now is that the left in the 70s was immensely powerful. The union movement was powerful. The left was powerful in broader society. Students were very interested in Marx. The people teaching them were very interested in Marx. Play for Today was on TV, very high profile, left-wing playwrights writing. So if you like the left, its ideas, its people were probably the, the dominant force in, in British political life in the 70s. And within that, the trade union movement was probably the most powerful element. And as you say, industrial relations were quite tense and involved these big set-piece battles, the minor strikes of the early 70s, the winter of discontent of the late 70s. And that sense of kind of a strong left confronting the right is kind of gone from, from British political life now. It carried on into the 80s, but it's really gone now, at least for the time being. And that's a huge difference. Unions are much smaller now. The Transport and General Workers Union, Jack Jones Union, which was the biggest union in the 70s, had over 2 million members, is now amalgamated with another union, has a new name, Unite, it has half the membership. So that whole way of arranging things in society that you had conflicts played out between the left and the right very overtly that's kind of gone it may not have gone forever but it's gone for now and i think it went really during the 90s yeah i mean one one corrective to the rather simplistic view that along comes thatcher and smashes the unions is that actually she was rather tentative at the start and and had a had a very tough time so it wasn't it wasn't a matter of great power being exerted and the unions crumbling was it it was the, things were changing much more um subtly and slowly than that that's right i mean thatcher although she had quite strong ideas about how britain was going to change she was quite pragmatic and quite canny and when she was elected in 1979 the unions were very powerful though they just destroyed the callaghan government in the winter of discontent and she was well aware of that and when the miners threatened to go on strike in 1981, it's now entirely forgotten, Thatcher basically backed down and gave them everything they wanted. And conservatives will say now oh, that's because we were preparing for the next confrontation. But I think that they're just saying that. I think that she wasn't strong enough in the early 80s to really take on the unions. Well into the 80s, a lot of conservatives, let alone Labour politicians, felt that very strong unions were just a fact of life. And I think another thing I try and argue in the book is that in all eras, things don't end neatly, that things like very strong union movement take a long time to kind of decay. They don't decay overnight. And that things often last into subsequent eras that are assumed to have ended in the era before. And certainly a lot of the politics of the 70s really lingers deep into the 80s. It's arguably only after the 83 election when Thatcher has a big majority and then beats the miners in 84, 85, that the 70s really ends. I think in a lot of ways the 70s didn't end in 1979. Oh. They ended about 1982. Um, and that's perhaps something that's not widely enough um, thought. Of, of the three male prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher comes along in, in 79 at the end of the decade, but of the three male prime ministers in the decade, it, it seemed to me that 
Heath was kind of like the end of a line of, of One Nation Toryism, and Wilson was a sort of tired old man whose administration was crumbling. But that Callaghan was the, was the interesting figure to whom perhaps posterity has been rather unkind. And you, you talk about Britain being a more equal society, having less poverty, according to all the indices under Callaghan than, than before or since. And I wondered if some kind of rehabilitation of Callaghan was part of, part of what you felt emerged from your examination of the period. Yes, I think I did, to some extent, want to rehabilitate him. I think that he's an interesting transitional figure because although he was quite an old man when he was Prime Minister, he was in his mid-60s, he'd been in the Labour Party, he'd been in the trade union movement for decades, he was prepared to accept that Britain needed to change. And some of the things he did with the economy, bringing in monetarism, cutting state spending, people under him were interested in privatising council housing, although they never actually did it. Some of those things were beginning to do, if you like, a sort of soft Thatcherism. I don't think Callaghan had quite worked out how to deal with the unions, and I think in a way that's why they brought him down. But I think other areas of British life where consumerism was becoming more important, the late 70s is the period of Brent Cross Shopping Centre opened, Freddie Laker was doing cheap flights to America, people becoming more interested in buying stuff and having stuff and private property, things that we associate with the 80s. He was kind of adapting to that in a sort of halting way. And I think that had the winter of discontent not happened, I think it's possible that he might have won an election in 1978 and may have overseen some of the transition that Thatcher oversaw in the 80s. I don't think he would have gone as far as her, but I think he was beginning to have some thoughts along the same lines. And I think that makes him an interesting figure, but also a kind of tragic figure, because in a way he threw it all away by misjudging where the unions were standing at the end of 78 and allowing the winter of discontent to happen. One of the most interesting things for me, which I didn't know much about, was the, the rise of, of the right and seeing how that took shape among think tanks and particular ideologues. And was, was that something that you, you know, where, where you discovered quite a lot of things as you dug deeper into it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I was fascinated to see that the ideas that we associate with Thatcherism to do with privatisation, to do with curbing the unions, to do with cutting taxes, were part of a big kind of intellectual movement, if you like, that had been building in Europe and America really since the end of the Second World War, or even since during the Second World War, and that this kind of new politics of the right was just kind of growing and growing very slowly during the 50s and 60s. While everyone was focusing on the welfare state and the strength of the left and the strength of the unions, there was this kind of thing that was going to usurp that world, just building and building. But the Thatcher when she became Conservative leader, suddenly gave that that political movement, that intellectual movement, an entirely new momentum. But the kind of deep history of that, I found very interesting. And I try elsewhere in the book to show that the roots of a lot of what happens in the 70s can be traced back much further than that decade, that, that Heath and Jack Jones and Healy were all people who were involved in the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War, and that formed their politics in a large way. And a lot of Thatcher's ideas went back decades. And if you like, the 70s was the moment when the deep-rooted ideas about how to arrange society, which had been gradually accreting for decades, came into confrontation with each other. It wasn't an overnight thing that the Conservatives suddenly became interested in curbing the unions. It's something that had been building up and... I think that's a key point in understanding the 70s. It's not just a kind of aberrant, freakish decade. It's it's the kind of culmination of a lot of changes in ideas and the structure of society that have been going on since at least the Second World War, if not earlier. 
another of those continuities that goes back to the 60s is the the rise of things like environmentalism yeah. and grassroots movements women's liberation gay rights and so on and they really flowered if you like in the 70s that's right i mean i think that as you say feminism and environmentalism and so on that, that they begin in britain in, in a proper sense in the late 60s but they really achieve momentum in the 70s that's when things like spare rib were set up that's when the green party or its precursor the people party was set up and I think an important point about those movements is that they move to a completely different rhythm from Westminster politics. So if you're involved in feminism or gay rights or environmentalism, a lot of years in the 70s are the kind of best times you'd ever had. They weren't bad times at all. And that kind of makes you think afresh about the 70s being a bad time because you begin to wonder, well, just because things were bad in the economy or in Westminster, if there are these other movements, environmentalism, that have become immensely important recently, having the best time ever, then we need to rethink our kind of chronology of the period, if you like. And arguably, those bits of politics in the 70s have had the biggest legacy. A lot of the world of the left in the 70s has disappeared, at least for now, whereas the world of environmentalism, I mean, David Cameron's a signatory to that whole thing now. A lot of the gay rights stuff that was happening in the early 70s, David Cameron would agree with that now. So in a way, the deep roots of a lot of the kind of non-economic politics that we see now are in the 70s. And I wanted to kind of talk to people about that then and capture a sense of that excitement of growth the 70s was a period of kind of growth and possibility as well as a period of kind of entropy which is the traditional way of looking at it it's just a series of dead ends and i think once you start looking at that non-westminster politics that very bleak view of the 70s just doesn't really stand up anymore yeah there were two really interesting polls that you quoted in the book one was on that the, the sort of happiness index and britain scored really highly much higher than it does today and the other was where people were asked about certain lifestyle things like, would you like more pavement cafes? And the majority said no. And would you like Sunday opening? And the majority said no. And I thought that was a very interesting you to think about those two things in tandem because we've got all of those cafes. Yeah. We've, we've got Sunday opening and so on. Um, but we've, we've gone considerably down the, the list of um, the, the, the happiness league. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wouldn't want to kind of rose tint the 70s. I mean, I think in some ways Britain was a worse place. I mean, it was definitely more racist. It was more homophobic. It was more sexist than it is now. It was probably infuriatingly slow in some ways, particularly if you wanted to go and buy things. But I think that in other ways, I mean, it was a more equal society. It was, as you mentioned earlier, the kind of absolute peak of kind of equality in Britain is in the late 70s, partly because in the recessions in the 70s, rich people did quite badly. Poor people were not so hard, uh, were not so badly affected. But yes, I think that some of the things that we've got now to do with consumerism haven't made us happier, even though... At the time, people people might have been thinking, oh, it would be nice to be able to go to a bookshop on a Sunday or whatever, but actually, you know, it hasn't, hasn't made us happier. And I think that now that we were in the middle of a big economic slump, people may be beginning to reevaluate a bit, well, what's important in the economic life of a country? And arguably in the 70s, the headline figures were not great, but there were other things going on to do with quality of life, to do with you know, the amount of pollution, the amount of traffic on the roads and so on, those sort of indices I think were better. And I think now that we're beginning to get away from the 70s chronologically, people are prepared to see the period with a bit more objectivity and realise that, yeah, that life then was not as kind of terrible. I mean, my I was a kid in the 70s and I remember my parents were not wealthy, but I remember us having lots of stuff. Um, a lot of people in the 70s had a lot of consumer goods and that's why there's all that 70s kitsch that we now like to laugh at because people could afford that stuff in the 40s or the 50s people couldn't buy that stuff so there isn't much kitsch from the 40s and there was a sense of abundance particularly for working class people particularly if they were in unions which most working class people were 
because their pay rises were high, they were keeping pace with inflation, unemployment was very low. So as I say, it was not in any way a utopia. I think it was a, a quite a tough society in some ways, but in some ways it was also a kinder society than, than what we've got now. Andy Beckett. When the Lights Went Out is available now in hardback. My second guest today is Adam Creed. Adam's new novel, Suffer the Children, introduces us to the London of D.I. Will Wagstaff, known to all as Staff. His first case is a grisly one, investigating a series of brutal attacks on suspected paedophiles. Adam, who used to work in the city, and now combines writing with working with offenders in prison, told me about creating his detective. I mean, I really wanted a character who, who I could get to the bottom of, and I wanted a character whose, whose motives bore explanation, uh, and he had a certain depth. I often think when I'm reading crime that protagonists are asked to do such extraordinary things that you really, the reader deserves to know where, where the protagonist gets, gets that sort of moral certitude and that inner strength from. I had this idea that I wanted him to be financially independent. I didn't want him to have to go to work if he really didn't want to. If he had a moral dilemma which he felt he couldn't overcome, then he could walk away. And this sort of redoubles his commitment to the notion of justice and law and his, his own personal sense of what is right and how that blends with the requirements, the st- statutory requirements of the law. And that's, that's quite an unusual attribute in the crime genre, isn't it? Because often you've got, you've got coppers who are down to their last fiver and so on. So to have that sort of independence already sort of sets them apart. Yes, and also I, I wanted a character who was quite, I, I don't know, I don't really want to use the word sort of chic, uh, but in, in a way that, it, you know, he d- some some um, some British crime heroes drink log from tins and, and have takeaway food and are overweight and have barren love lives. I wanted Staff to have all those things that those people lack. I wanted him to be not quite a James Bond figure, but he's, he's very well educated. He has an interest in antiques. He likes fine wine. He drinks single blend malt whiskies. He... He has an array of girlfriends who we meet variously as, as the series progresses. But everything he does stems from this sort of moral imperative which came from his, his late teens when his mother and father were killed by, by Basque terrorists on a trip they made to Bilbao when, when Staff had just gone off to university. And that knocked him for six and he went on the rail, off the rails for a while. He eventually found, found a way of making sense of their loss by his relationship with the law. He joined the police force and he had several mentors whom we meet as the series progresses. That's, that sets him his goals, really, as a policeman. But there's still a very strong sense of that being unresolved business, isn't there? Yes, I mean, we're obviously telling each story as we go along. It's early in the series. But there is this sense that everything staff learns from the challenges which are, are presented to him in the books in the series will culminate in him gathering a a sense of justice, a sense of resolve, and a sense of perspective that will inform his response when he finally brings the murderer of his his parents to to justice. And even as we speak, I don't know whether he will exact vengeance or whether he will find it in his heart to forgive the man. And this is is the grand sort of challenge that sort of faces staff, and one that he lives with day to day, and one which colours the way in which he sees uh, the crimes that we see him uh, facing. 
Yeah, I mean, vengeance and retribution are very much themes of this book. Maybe you can say a bit about what the nature of the case that he encounters is. A suspected but unconvicted paedophile is murdered early in the book. Within a, a couple of chapters, there's another attack, quite a grisly attack, on a similar a similar person from a completely different social class, uh, but again, a suspected paedophile, unconvicted. And staff strains to make a connection between between the two cases. They're geographically distinct. In socioeconomic terms, they're distinct. So we have, we have two paedophiles being assaulted and one of them killed. And then we have the, the wake of those characters' actions, which is backstory. And, and Staff looks, looks into who, who those crimes were perpetrated against. And he sees there's, there's, a, there's a sort of backwater of unsolved cases against children in which the, uh, the alleged perpetrators in those instances were brutally killed. And, and Staff goes back into the past to try and piece together what person might be behind this series of killings and assaults. And as he goes back in time, it takes him back to a time at which he was uh, working with his mentor, uh, a D.I. Jessup, who appears to be involved in a way that Staff might feel uncomfortable with. And as you say, the murder and the attempted murder are grisly and they've got a quasi-ritualistic element to them mm. in the way they're presented. And yes. there's a very sort of conscious presenting of the results of these crimes yes. to the police, isn't there? I find myself in a very difficult position because I do a lot of work with offenders and ex-offenders. And, and I know, hopefully as a humane being, that one cannot castrate or execute or incarcerate these people for all their born days. There has to be a way of, of overcoming the, the problems faced by these people. We have to believe that there is a way beyond the unthinkable as a means of, of handling such crimes. But on the other hand, as a, as a father and as a father of daughters, when one hears about such cases, the sap rises and the blood boils and you have a completely different imaginary response to what might happen, God forbid, should such a thing happen to you as a parent. And the ritualistic element comes from allowing myself to indulge a fantasy as to what what you might do to somehow even things up in your own mind as a parent who has seen their children harmed and defiled in such a way. The unhappiness of those two trains of, of, of thought and emotion is what riddles the book and is what tortures staff in this, in this story and he has to overcome that uh, before deciding which trammels of law and justice he, he goes down. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about writing about violence. I mean, how do you how do you approach it? What kind of frame of mind are you in when you when you are about to write one of these quite gruesome scenes? I think it's entirely about character and the depth with which you can empathise and understand and articulate where your character is coming from. And you, I think, you have to go very deep into what makes people do the terrible things that they do. And crime novels are populated by terrible terrible actions and I don't think we always understand what it takes to bring somebody to do such a terrible thing and I hope that one of the things that might distinguish uh, not distinguish my book but put my book in good company is that I don't take violence lightly I think it takes a hell of a lot to to take another human life and I think before you you take a life in a in a, in a work of fiction you have to you have to absolutely Put the reader in a position whereby they understand and can empathise with what would bring a character to do such a thing. 
you're clearly interested in the consequences of crime. I mean, these the the, the paedophiles' crimes have affected the lives not only of children but of parents, and there are broken relationships and all sorts of consequences that you you trace throughout the book. Yes, I mean this. Um a sort of repercussive effects of one bad act creates many, many other bad acts, which creates an energy for, for the narrative to, to go forward. But it's also interesting to work back from, rather than look at the consequences of these violent acts, it's also the causes of violent acts. And I think the, the causes and the consequences are, are often linked. And the, there is this well-documented sort of cycle of abuse that somebody who has being exploited in such a way is likely to visit those exploitations on other people as a means of rationalizing how they can get through life. Our job as writers, and it's what will interest readers, is to is to get to the bottom of what makes supposedly bad people do terrible things. So it's a question of sort of immersing myself in those minds and having a, a glass of wine before I come out and face the world again, I guess. You talked about mentors, and Staff is a character who, as you say, lost his father when he was young, and I suppose it's maybe not too Freudian and fanciful to think, you know, he's he's been looking for some kind of father figures or some kind of guidance to guide him through the the dilemmas of his life. And and one of those is is Jessup, who's a key character in the book. Yeah, um, Staff is um, he, he he's a very popular man. He has he has a sister, he has a nephew, he has friends, and he has colleagues who respect him. But he's, he's essentially quite a lonely man. His values are, are sort of bespoke to him. He hasn't he hasn't inherited. A set of values from his father. They were quite distant at the time his, his father died. Um, so the way staff sees the world is is kind of constructed by him in a kind of isolation. And we'll get to understand that more as as the series develops, I guess. I'm trying to explore the nature of his relationship with his parents as the series progresses. And that will further colour the nature of his relationship with, with his mentors, one of whom is no longer in in the country. I don't, can't say too much about that because it involves divulging the plot of the first book. But needless to say, this uh, this cast of, of mentors will reappear and, and further shape the way in which Steph fashions his career and his personal life and and the attainment of his of his goals as the series progresses. Now, you, you said he's, he's a man of independent means. He doesn't have to work if he doesn't want to. He's got property around London. Mm-hmm. And he also runs. He's a runner. And so London, the point, you know, points of the compass of London are part of the, the story, really. I mean, tell me how you evoked London, what kind of view of London you wanted to kind of emerge from the, the, these books. I lived in London for, uh, for 15 years, and I no longer do. And, and I have a, an unsated love affair with, with London. In my study at home, I look out... Uh, grass and trees and sheep but the right the writing of these books can transport me back to to this city which I'm, I'm not from but w- which I fell in love with as a young man and as a result of that I guess it's it's kind of I kind of cherry pick London as, as writers retain the right to do and it's it's not it's a realistic but also quite an impressionistic version of London with a, a juxtaposing of of the glitz and the decadence of London I like to bring those two two aspects of the city together in a way that when I used to work in the city for my sins and on slack afternoons rather than um, go down to uh, Corney and Barrow I'd get the bus up to up to Dalston Market and and drink overproof rum in the West Indian mm-hmm. pubs and watch the guys play dominoes and and wander through the market looking at the goats heads and mm-hmm. all the vegetables I didn't quite understand and I've always had that sort of that notion that you're only ever 
a five minute walk from one London to the other. And I, ho I hope you get a sense of, of that in the books because I think a, a good story is all about the coming together of, of, of things that, that aren't particularly reconcilable. And I think London has that in spades. You read on the website the opening of the book and it's an unsecure conviction, isn't it? It's a conviction mm. which the police have obtained by illegitimate means. And that sort of sets the tone really about ends and means which runs through the whole book. Yes, I mean, Staff has this relationship with his, his chief inspector, Pennington, which, which we're, we're struggling to get to the bottom of. We don't, Pennington's a little bit of a shapeshifter. He patently respects Staff as, as a policeman. He doesn't quite trust Staff's motives. Pennington's a career man, Staff isn't. And it's not until later in the series that we quite get to the bottom of where Pennington's relationship with the law comes from. But the, the sort of clash between the way Staff sees himself within the force and Pennington sees himself within the force does raise this issue as to what, what, what is the best way to serve, to serve the nation in, in enforcing the law. And if, if you know that somebody is guilty and the evidence isn't quite there, but you can put them away anyway by slightly tampering with procedure, then is that for the greater good? Or do you have to absolutely respect the evidence and trust the law to do right? And Staff's view would be that you cannot play God. You know, if you're involved in the law, you have to, you have to implement law at every single stage and trust the machine. Adam Creed. Suffer the Children is out now in hardback. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Faber podcast. If you have, it's free and easy to subscribe to future programmes. Just type Faber in the search box on iTunes and click on subscribe. Our next podcast will be a special edition devoted to a major interview I recently conducted with Kazuo Ishiguro. I hope you'll join me then. Thank you for listening, meanwhile, and until next time, goodbye.